this is hard, right? And particularly if, if, if we've just followed my advice and hired a whole bunch of really seasoned product folks who are emotionally connected to the last product, they, the last software tool they used and the last roadmap format they used and, you know, their Kanban versus Scrum fist fights in the hallway and all this stuff, right? Um, I actually believe that it's less important for me as the product leader to choose and more important for the team to get to a common answer. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Shirazian, and welcome to PM Hub Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Rich, welcome to PM Hub. Great. Thanks so much, Cyrus. Awesome. So I'm really excited to chat with you uh, about uh, this topic today, Rich. Uh, so first, I'm curious to know, from your perspective, who is a product leader and how does the reporting structure look like? Yeah, it varies a lot from place to place. I think there's no consistency here. So I've grabbed the the label product leader because there doesn't seem to be any particular HR designation that means what I mean. So for me, a product leader is anybody who runs, who, who directly manages a team of product managers. They might have a couple of designers or some other folks in there, some some prod ops or, or whatever, uh, but I'm specifically not thinking about people who run big engineering organizations with a little bit of product on the side. So if you, you know, if you have 85 developers and four product managers, I'll call you a VP of engineering or CIO or something. So product leaders, you know, lots of, lots of titles, group product manager, director, VP of product, chief product officer, really hard to tell. Um, so, so I generally go with, show me that you've got some product managers working for you and then I'll put you in the category of product leaders because at that point I think we know we have a lot to talk about. That's right. That's right. Now, what are the if you were to break it down, what are the main sets of challenges for product leaders that are different from managing, you know, individual products? Yeah, a good, a really good and something I've thought a lot about um, because when you move up into the product leader job, you're really not going to be doing very much product management per se. So I had sort of ticked off three or four things that are the ones that I expect product leaders to do, again, distinct from the product managers who work for them. Um, the first one really is sort of designing and building and nurturing your product team. Who do you need? How are you going to get them? How are they organized? Um, a second thing on my list is to make sure that the company has a product strategy. Uh, it isn't necessarily true that the product leader has to be the one to make that product strategy, but I know it's going to go really badly if we don't have one. So how do we make sure that there's actually some product strategy, maybe some tooling underneath that or OKRs? Um, third thing for me is there's a tremendous amount of work I think we as product leaders do to build good cross-functional collaboration to build bridges out to the marketing folks and the sales folks and the development teams and the operations and finance. How do we make friends and influence people? Because we all know that product management has no authority and it's only got responsibility. And then depending on where you are and how big your organization is, there's probably a group of senior execs, C-level folks who need special handling and a lot of coaxing and training and working with. So to the extent that it's a big enough company that your immediate peers may not be your C-level, there's some special things I think we as product leaders do to really work with the CEO and, and the, the rest of the executive team. 
Right on. Now, are these challenges that you mentioned uh, in the scope for all layers of product leadership, let's say from group product managers all the way up to CPO? I think they are. And, and in fact, they're not really that different from a lot of what we do as product managers. It's just that I think as, as you have a bigger company, as you move up the org chart, you tend to spend, at least I tend to spend a lot more of my time focused on the executive behaviors and getting folks to cooperate and goal alignment. So I think as we move up the organization and get bigger scope, we do less and less of the actual product managing. And we do more of what I might think of as product managing the executive team and product managing the organization and product managing the goal structures and making sure we're not misaligned. Um, so it's a lot of the same stuff, but th the items you work on are no longer releases and backlogs. They're much more of the people who have to help you get those things done. Yeah, and I guess, you know, product being, the, if, especially for tech companies, the product is a center, I'm assuming, for you know uh, a lot of tech companies. And because it's affected, all the other departments are affected by the product. I think what you're mentioning about this product leadership role, to be able to align with the other teams is really important, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so many of the clients I've had over the years have had issues where the different departments have sort of narrow goals. Um, one, one I love to hate the most is where the support team is given a goal of reducing the average time they spend on the phone or the chat line with, with users who have problems. And it's a completely dumb goal because if we haven't solved the, the issue that the user has, they're gonna call back and be that much more angry. But if we set up these sort of narrow cost containment things by functional group, we end up losing customers and losing market share and not satisfying everybody. So, so as a product person, and I'm thinking a lot about motivators and metrics, I notice that other groups may not be as thoughtful. They may not be as incisive about how they're measuring and the goals they're setting. And that just messes it up. Um, one other one on that, that theory that I come across a lot is where uh, we're, a, let's say we're a software product company. We make package software and we're going to make an awful lot of money by selling more copies of the software we packaged. This would seem obvious, but if we give our sales team an incentive where they get paid the same amount for bringing in some big special deal for some big weird one-off contract bit of programming, you know what? That's what they're going to do. And we're going to discover that we don't get any of our products shipped or sold because we keep getting all these crazy special one-offs coming in that make us look like a professional services company because we've incorrectly set the goals or the metrics for our sales team and they're doing what we pay them to do instead of what we want them to do so you know again if we put our organizational hats on as product leaders we're going to notice all kinds of folks around the company doing things that probably aren't the right one and instead of getting angry at them i think the first choice we want to make is to look at how we're paying and rewarding and measuring them and seeing if we're doing the wrong thing mm. That's such a good point, and I'm sure we're going to talk more details about this one later on now. Sure. But let's unpack each of these four challenges, Rich. The first one is about uh, designing, building, and nurturing a product team. So what is that all about? Well, I think if, if I'm going to be in charge of a team of product managers, and again, maybe I have some designers and some other folks on that group, I have to figure out how many I need. 
uh, I have to probably justify that to somebody on the finance side or the executive team. And then we have to sort of stack them up against the right sets of problems against development teams, against markets, who knows. And, and then as well, I have to have a plan for who I'm going to hire and at what level. Uh, I know that if we hire a whole product team full of newbies and first time product managers who've never gotten their noses bloodied out in the marketplace, uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time mentoring and teaching and coaching and doing the basics. Uh, if we bring in a whole team of subject experts who, by the way, know a lot about the product, but nothing about product management. There's going to be a tremendous amount of wrestling between whether those folks truly know the perfect answers because they've used the products, or I can convince them to go out and do a bunch of research and validation and finding out what the rest of the market wants. So when we fill up our product team, how many do we need? Where do they come from? How do we recruit them? How do we mentor them to get the right stuff? I think is an essential element. Otherwise, you know, some HR person is going to randomly give me some recs and some job descriptions for things that are wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Now, is there a ratio between, let's say, on a product team, there are developers and designers and PM. Is there a ratio between developers and PMs? Uh, that's hard, and it depends a lot on the state of your company and where you are in the evolution. So I, I don't think there's a magic number. Uh, for relatively... Um, mature products where we've been in the market for a few releases. Uh, one of the numbers I usually grab is, is a sort of one to 10 ratio as the max, but the 10 here, I'm not just counting developers. I'm thinking of everybody who I would put in the, the maker category, designers, DevOps, test automation, tech writers. So if I count up all the folks on the truly making things side of the house, including developers, I think we're probably not serving them very well if there's more than eight or nine or maybe 10 of those people for every product manager, because we're not just writing stories. We're supposed to be out in the market figuring out what's true, what, what's really going to matter. Um, if you're in a really early stage company or you're still doing first round validation, then maybe it's one product manager, one designer, and one senior architect on the dev side who go out together for three months or six months and figure out what the market needs. Um, and if you're in a very late stage company, I think if, if you've got a set of products that you're, you know, doing cash harvesting on their cash cows, then, you know, maybe it's on a dollar basis. Every product manager has a $10 million quota. I don't know. Um, so, you know, I think it depends a lot, but, but certainly when I see a company with 20 or 30 developers for every product manager, I know they're failing. I don't even need to talk to anybody that's just you know we've run off the edge of capability yeah yeah in terms of like uh, you mentioned on hiring side and what, what do you think is a good strategy as a product leader when it comes to hiring their, their strategy for hiring uh, well I, I don't know again you know very varies with situations but i tend to go first looking for senior product managers who've been product managers before and a few reasons for that. One is I think it's way easier to learn a new market or a product than it is to learn how to be a product manager. So I see a lot of folks who make this sort of fundamental error on my part. They say, oh, we're in the, uh, I don't know, we make six-factor authentication systems, right? And nobody in the world can understand six-factor authentication unless you've got a doctorate in authentication science. And so we're going to go out and get a bunch of subject experts or PhDs who've never done product management 
we're going to give him a product manager badge and send him into battle. That just seems wrong to me. So first I'm looking for, if I can, folks who've been around the block, who've been product managers, and for whatever reason want to do it again, because I think a lot of smart folks do product management for a while and they they quickly figure out it's not their favorite thing. But you've been in, done it before, brought a bunch of uh, versions or releases out on some products that matter. So I'm going to go there first. And I generally try to separate B2B folks from B2C folks, because I think B2B world's very different from the mass market consumer. So if I were at a B2B company, as I usually am, I'm looking for somebody with you know, a few years of experience as a product manager on a B2B product. Um, if, if I've got enough of those on my team, I might bring some young, bushy-tailed, excited new product managers in because I'll be able to pair them up and maybe have some mentoring relationships there. And I might put a subject expert on the team, but I'm going to be watching them pretty carefully because I think there's a whole series of mistakes that subject experts make in their first product management job. And I'd rather have them make it in somebody else's shop on somebody else's product. So, you know, again, a balance. If it's a brand new space, maybe there's nobody with experience. But, uh, you know, I would say if you've worked on ERP systems, then you can certainly understand network security. You can understand AI and machine language. You can understand, um, you know, big data flows and data lakes and ETLs, whatever. Um, I don't think I need to get someone who's been on the very same product or very same market. but give me some adjacencies. Yeah, no, that's fair. Now, on this topic, I've noticed quite a number of product leaders making hiring calls purely on direct similar past experience solely. So I'm, I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on this? Wouldn't having someone with fresh eyes and on a product initiative likely bring more innovation or out-of-the-box thinking to it? I think there's a mix here. So um, I believe, for instance, I do a lot of work the last couple of three years around machine learning and AI and natural language processing. That's pretty hard stuff. So if you bring some AI and machine learning experience, I think you're up the curve. Right. On the other hand, if you've only done AI for the last 25 years, you're probably blinded to a lot of things that are happening out there. So I'd both look for individuals that have a mix of experience, but I'd also look across the team. So if I've parachuted into a company where all four of the product managers are deep technical experts for a long time in their market, then I probably want some folks with some fresh thinking, right? Uh, Because I think we bring lessons from other markets. We bring lessons from other products and situations if you've had to end a life a bunch of products and you know it's hard and ugly, well, that's almost the same anywhere you go. So if we pick somebody up who's done a bunch of good producty work elsewhere, I think their own experience is going to really uh, be valuable, leaven the problem a little bit, uh, expand our thinking. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, let's move on to the next one, Rich. You know, the challenge about driving outcomes, strategy, and tools. Mm. What is this one all about? Sure. I mean, I I see so many companies that have as their only goal to hit a revenue number, (laughs) right? Our goal this quarter is to hit 40 million, whatever that is. That is, in my view, of zero value to the product team and the engineering team because we should be asking more nuanced questions like, Are we trying to upsell our current base? Are we trying to expand new customers in the current segment we're in? Are we expanding out to new segments or markets? Again, are we late stage harvesting for for cash? You know, there's got to be some more strategy here that's founded on what our products really do, 
what our competitors are really doing, what our customers really need. Um, so when we get to strategy, I think it has to be grounded in some real work. Um, you know, have my team and I talked with, interviewed, you know, 30 of our current customers and 15 of the ones who turned off recently to find out what's really happening. Right? I don't think you can, you know, parachute somebody in from uh, BCG or some consulting company who looks through a couple of your roadmaps and writes out a strategy for you. Makes no sense. Right. And then the, I think the transition over the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years from sort of uh, what Melissa Perry calls the feature factory. Right. Mm -hmm. to, to be trapped in, in the, the output and feature factory is where we've lost the connection between why we're doing a thing that's on our roadmap and how it's going to move the business. So I'm a big fan of OKRs or KPIs or whatever three letter acronym you like, where we we try to look at the business outcomes where we can, and we argue with ourselves about whether a particular piece of tech or a new feature is going to drive behavior on the part of customers. Does it lead to more upsell? Does it lead to better usage? Can we reduce our churn by addressing the three or four issues that people raise when they quit our service? Right. I'm always looking to, to tie why it matters and who it matters and how it's going to make us money with what we're building. So depending on how you look at those driving of outcomes, you know, you might have an OKR driven roadmap that really calls out what we're trying to move. Right. And then, of course, once you've got a strategy, once you've got some outcomes, you can work on things like tooling. Um, I, I don't particularly think that any one software package that's designed for product managers is going to give you a strategy or convince your executives that you're right. So. You know, I put the tools and the software later in the process, whereas the strategy and the outcomes come first. What do we care about? What, what matters? Now, again, back to the previous point, I don't know that the head of product, the product leader, has to be the person to think about that and get the answer. Maybe you've got a bunch of really smart folks in the company. You know, back pre-COVID, I would take them all out for drinks and lunch and let them all give me the smart answer and give them credit for it. So we got a good strategy. I don't have to be the ego-driven guy who, you know, thumps his chest and says I'm the smartest kid. But if we don't have a strategy, I know every one of my product managers is going to fail. Yeah, no, for sure. Now, a point on OKRs you mentioned, like who is in charge of setting his OKRs, and you know, how do you balance between customer objectives and you, or like that's the user if that's the case, versus the business objectives? I, th I think OKRs is really a distributed problem, um, but, but if we don't get it right, then the product team fails. So as if I'm the most senior product person in the company, it's not officially my job to make sure everybody has the right OKRs, but I know what happens if they don't. So I end up spending a lot of my time gently lobbying and mentoring and coaching and whatever other verbs we want to use here so that the sales team's OKRs and the marketing team's OKRs line up and make some sense and that the customer success folks aren't trying to push people in a direction that the product's not going. Right? So, you know, distributed problem on the, on the product narrower side, if we're thinking about specific product OKRs, I think we as the product managers probably should be driving those with good consultation from everybody else uh, because we need to know how our products are supposed to succeed 
And if somebody gives us a dumb set of OKRs, we're going to either ignore them and not get our bonus or follow them and take it in the wrong direction. Um, good example here is where um, some of our customers are churning off because we sold them the wrong solution and it's never going to work for them. And some of our customers are churning off because they're trying to do the right thing, but we've got some product failures. So we don't want to necessarily have an overall churn goal if that's going to take us in the wrong direction and have us keep customers who are just going to be unhappy. So, you know, let's think deeply about what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, I, I see a lot of companies that spend a whole year arguing about whether they should have OKRs. And then they spend like four minutes choosing the OKRs. And they're completely wrong and dumb and lead us in all the wrong directions, right? That's the wrong mix of effort here, right? Everybody should be doing some kind of quantitative goals, but let's really argue, let's fight hard about what we're trying to accomplish and how we're going to measure it so we don't waste our time. 100%. Now, on, on a part about balancing between, uh, you know, customer objectives versus business, I'm curious yeah. to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah. Um, and, and remember, I come out of a lot of enterprise experience, right? So not just B2B, but big B2B with small numbers of customers who wave big, you know, lots of dollars or whatever currency we're in. And so there's always, always, always the pressure from the sales side. You know, we've, we've heard this conversation a thousand times where, you know, Deutsche Bank is going to sign for 2.4 million euros, but all they want are these two tiny little enhancements. How hard could they be? They're probably only 10 lines of code, right? But it turns out one of those two means re-architecting the whole company and, and everything we've built over the last three decades. And so, you know, there's this, I think, fine horse sense that you need as the head of product to decide which of these deals I'm going to throw myself in front of and stop and which ones are going to go forward. So, you know, good collaboration with sales, a real understanding that some deals won't happen no matter how big they are. Because uh, if we sign up for a big piece of work that's going to derail our roadmap and sink all of our customer satisfaction and block the next three versions of the product, which is going to make everybody happy, then company's out of business and I lose my job anyway, right? So, you know, there's this constant daily wrestling match between... Uh, an individual enterprise sales team that, well, all they see is this one deal because that's what they're paid on. And so they believe that everyone in the world wants it. And on the other side, you know, good, simple business case analysis that says, we're going to lose 50 million in business if we do this. And it's only a $500,000 deal. Right? Mm -hmm. um, one other way to think about that, and I've written a lot about pie charts because Pie charts have the great feature that if you want to make one slice of the pie bigger, you have to make another slice of the pie smaller. And to do a sort of aggregation or a summing up of all of the special things we did for one-off deals last quarter. And to see whether that's consuming 5% of engineering or 20 or 80. Because if it's 30% if it's or more, I actually think we're a professional services firm and we should give up the idea that we're building product. Right. And, and when we put it in those stark terms, we look at last quarter and we see what we really did instead of what we intended to do. That's a good way to come back to the rest of the executive team and show that we're way off strategy because these one-off deals that appear to be big and special are consuming all of engineering and most of product and design.
like what you hear so far, make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself, and I'm thankful for your support. Now, let's head back to the show. Yeah, no, I love how you broke it down. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, you touched upon the tools, uh, Rich. Now, I'm curious to know, sure. how does a product leader go about standardizing processes across multiple product teams? Uh, this is hard, right? And particularly if 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 we've just followed my advice and hired a whole bunch of really seasoned product folks who are emotionally connected to the last product, they, the last software tool they used and the last roadmap format they used. And, you know, they're Kanban versus Scrum, fist fights in the hallway and all this stuff, right? Um, I actually believe that it's less important for me as the product leader to choose and more important for the team to get to a common answer where that's true. So uh, to say I don't care is overstating it, but I don't think the tools drive the job here. So if three of the five folks on my team were using the same you know, ticketing system or uh, customer input system or road mapping tool, I'm happy with whichever one they like and everybody's going to get on board. It does make it much easier if everybody on the team is doing similar work with similar tools. So we're going to confuse the sales and marketing folks if every product has its own format and structure for what's happening next, or they have to look in six places. So I think there's, there's a lot of value in common tools and alignment. But I would really back off and say, if, if the folks on my team have strong preferences, we'll go with that for a starter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love how you've said, you know, just like leaving, having open dialogue between them and then they figure it out, right? So That's right. I think- and, and then at the far end, we know that the engineering team won't use anything that we picked from the product management side. So if we don't have an output to JIRA or whatever their ticketing system is, they're going to ignore everything we want. So there's some minimum technical requirements here. But um, I, for instance, don't expect my product managers to use JIRA as a product tool because it would be terrible. So, you know, what are we going to do to capture good customer input, to weight different parts of the, the model? And then we're going to just transform it somehow later. Yeah, no, that's fair. I was talking about the next challenge, Rich, on, uh, around growing cross-functional collaboration. Uh-huh. Yeah. This is, this is, again, I think this is leader level material. Now, every product manager does this, but uh, maybe not everybody on my team spends a lot of time on it. Um, we know that if marketing isn't paying attention to what we're building and shipping and releasing, then nobody's going to find out about it. And if sales doesn't have the right incentives to sell it, nobody's going to take it. And if support isn't excited and trained and has good FAQs and escalation paths, then our customers are going to suffer. So, uh, you know, lots of things we have to do here to build cross-functional collaboration. Uh, Things on my list. One is, um, I think I, as a product leader, probably need to visit every one of the staff meetings of my peers, let's say once a month or twice a quarter. You know, refresh them on the roadmap, ask for input, show them that we care. Um, I think... uh, you know, everybody on my product team needs to remind their cross-functional equivalents why the things we're building are important and how they're going to make money and why they're going to make customers happy. They're not just a bunch of features. And and I observe that the folks in the other functional groups 
don't remember this stuff very well because it's not their job, right? Folks in marketing don't generally remember exactly what's on the roadmap. They don't generally remember the details of, of product benefits or pricing or packaging. And I could be mad at them for that, but I shouldn't be because the real answer is they're busy doing marketing and they're doing events or lead gen or white paper creation. The folks in product marketing are probably pretty close to us, but we have to, I have to assume that every time I come into that meeting, you know, it's Groundhog Day. We're starting fresh. Um, I'm going to remind them what's on the plan because they've forgotten what it is and why it's important. And not for, for us to get all emotional about that because they're doing their jobs, right? And, uh, one other thing, and, and it, it's a small item, but it's one I love to do when I have the chance. Um, every, let's say every three or four weeks, I'll ask all of the folks on my product team to give me the name of somebody who's not in product, but has done a really good thing this week and we really appreciate and we'd like to recognize their extra effort or smarts or contribution. And, and I collect those and I ask my team to give me the one sentence. And then I send an email or a Slack or whatever it is, not to that person, but to their boss and saying, hey, Sally Sue on the tech writer team, you know, above and beyond, she did this really good work for us. We're really pleased that she's on our version 6.0 team. And the next time we put a team together, we'd really like Sally Sue because <clears throat> she's somebody who does great work and we respect, right? And that has a tremendous amount of, of side benefit. One, because her manager is going to call her in and thank her. Gosh, is that rare? Second, she might just get that approval or raise or tap on the shoulder that causes good people to get promoted and rewarded and bonused. And then in the longer game, because we're all in the long game, um, the rest of the company might start to realize that when they do good work that, that is what product management wants, we thank them for it and they feel good and we all get ahead, right? So that's a, that's a freebie, right? It costs nothing. But you know, it's not just product managers beating on other people to do stuff that they're unwilling to do. You know, how do we champion culture? How do we thank the other folks who do good work? Um, uh, I know that when a product really succeeds, uh, we know it because engineering took all the credit for building a great product. And sales took all the credit for selling a product because they're great salespeople. So I always want to share the the limelight. I want to share the 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 good news, of course, it's my job to make sure everybody on my team gets thanked because as product managers, we leave our egos at the door and we forget to thank ourselves. So I need to make sure that I not only thank the other departments, but I, I highlight when the people on my team are succeeding because it's pretty hard to tell, right? A, a great leader of any department is one where their folks are succeeding and getting promoted and getting ahead, right? That's the measure of leadership. Yeah, that's such a good point. Just last one you mentioned about the product leaderships, like success me measure for success, as you mentioned, is about how successful their PMs are, right? So yeah, that's such a great one. And it's pretty hard to tell if a PM is successful. Sometimes we put them on a really doggy product, or you know they're in a tough situation, or the competition's five years ahead. So we can't just manage our product managers on the top line revenue because that's out of mostly out of our control. But there's a lot of better subtle symptoms or, or signals that, you know, as product leaders, we want to recognize, we want to reward, we want to push our folks ahead. 
you know, maybe they graduate and they don't work for me anymore, but they get to do something even better. And, and that makes me feel great. It's like being a parent, you know, I want my kid to play the violin at Carnegie hall. It means I drive my kid to a lot of music lessons and I stand in the back of the hall and I applaud, but nobody cares that I'm there. They care about who's on stage. Yeah, I love that. Uh, now, how, how do you go about, you know, building that cross-functional trust and psychological safety, if you will? Um, well, no magic here, right? Um, we try not to lie to people. We try not to throw them under the bus or tram or whatever your transport is there, right? Um, I think it's our obligation to deal as straightforwardly as we can with everybody. Um, I think it's important... Um, Every day, every hour, somebody comes to every product manager with a really, really good idea. I'm sure it's happened to you, right? Now, most of those ideas are not actually very good ideas, but it's important that we separate the person from the idea. Instead of, you know, chewing them out and telling them they're stupid, right? We want to thank them for the effort they put in to come to us and bring us this. And then, of course, tell them we're going to put that idea in the backlog where it belongs in position 950 and it's never going to see the light of day. But, um, you know, I, I, I never want to be talking anybody down. I never want to be accusing anybody of things unless it's really true. Um, we want to lean across the aisle and help where we can. And, and I think we as product managers, because we're really very cross-functional, we have the opportunity to explain to lots of other departments why departments they're not happy with are actually doing okay. Um, I've never met a sales team that thought engineering was working hard enough, right? And uh, sales always thinks that the engineers are sitting around eating bonbons, right? Playing video games, right? It's never the case. Just as I know that the engineering team thinks often pretty badly of sales, right? That engineers think that sales means carrying a price list into a meeting, turning it around, having the customer sign it and fill out a purchase order, right? Sales is a lot harder than that. So part of our job, I think building bridges is to build understanding, is to build appreciation across the other functions. Because when the company's well, we succeed. And when the company's not doing well, we fail no matter what, right? Mm -hmm. so, so again, there's this generosity of spirit. There's this understanding of cross-functional behavior you know, why do marketing people work that behave that way? Well, it's because they're marketing people and that's how we pay and select them. So, you know, a lot of this is re-explaining endlessly why the product matters, re-explaining endlessly why customers want it and how it's going to help them, and then making sure we as a company love our customers and care and want to get it done. Yeah. It, it, it sounds simple, but you have to spend a lot of energy on it. Yeah, no, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Now, let's move on to the last challenge, Rich, and uh, working with other C-level execs. What is this one, Zaba? Uh, this is this is maybe the hardest part of my job and the hardest part of most product leaders' job because certainly you can't sit the CEO down and tell her or him that they're completely wrong and off base and they should stop doing the thing they're doing, right? But um, when I look at the behavior of C-level execs, it's it's a little more extreme than the director level folks. Um, everybody in the executive suite is ADHD, 
right? We're all getting thrashed by the latest customer escalation and the latest deal and this bug that opened up and the investors want a thing. So, so I know that most of the folks on the executive team are run ragged and exhausted and didn't retain much from the last executive staff meeting. Um, and they tend to think or they tend to work pretty much in their silos. And so uh, as, the, as the person on the executive team with the least staff and the smallest budget and really nothing at stake, um, you know, I'm going to try to work with the rest of the executive team to make sure our executive level goals are aligned, that um, sometimes I will take the other side of an argument that somebody on the team has because I feel like they're being outgunned or, or outspoken, you know, spoken over. So I'm often trying to get the other voices in the room to speak. Um, sometimes we need to change the way we run our strategy sessions or our weekly staff or whatever. Um, I, I think as product leaders, we're really attuned to how the different departmental folks feel and think. And it's easy in the C-suite to send down edicts and demands for folks to do stuff. But we may be some of the people at the table who really understand what's happening and how the reactions are going to be when we change strategy radically or let a whole division go or acquire a competitor and put some of those folks on top of our own teams. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of organizational dynamics. There's a lot of soft skills and, and these meet the revenue issue. Again, back to your original question. Um, the sales team will always bring forward things that have money attached and many of them won't make sense from a company point of view. So, so how do I, as the, as the product leader, get the rest of the team aligned around how we make those decisions, you know, how we approve or disapprove specials and, and weird stuff and price breaks or new markets, and, and how do we make sure we're doing our homework? So um, I, I no longer do a lot of validation and market work myself. I delegate to my team. But... You know, how do we keep bringing back the voice, the real voice of the customer instead of the voice of the deal or the voice of the executive? How do we keep injecting the reality of what our real users and real customers value and pay for? And we only do that by spending time outside the sales cycle, meeting with customers, listening our best, taking good notes, being humble, connecting the dots, you know, not falling into recency bias. Um, there's a, um, you know, there's a lot of really good work coming up. Certainly Teresa Torres is the person I think of first or Holly Hester Riley or a bunch of other folks, uh, Josh Seiden, um, uh, Tristan Cromer who do really good validation work and product folks are at their best. We're at our best when we're bringing truly analytical, thoughtful voice of customer paired with good solution and economics. Because that's how the customers are going to succeed, and that's how our company makes money. And if either of those fails, then you get to work somewhere else pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's uh, that's exactly it. Now I'm curious to know. Say, you know, what if a product leader's seniority level is not the same as a C-suite? What if there's a VP or director of product and then it goes directly, there's no CPO, it goes directly to CEO from there. What, what can they, they do when it comes to a situation that the seniority is not the same? How can they handle? Yeah, I'm not sure that the, the title matters here. I think working directly for the CEO is the key thing. 
because if you're layered down, if you're two layers down in the development or the engineering organization, then there's no one at the executive table necessarily who's going to be pushing the product point of view. Now, maybe your CTO, CIO, VP of engineering really has great product chops, in which case you're okay. But when I, when I see an executive team and there's no product person at the table around that big circle, then I'm expecting them to be making a lot of shorter term, maybe not so well thought out choices that are gonna bite us later. There's a lot of mortgaging the future that's easy to do if you're not thinking from a product point of view. Um, you know, hey, we need to make more money, let's just raise prices. Or uh, we're late on our next major release, we can probably skip a bunch of the testing and keep it on time, can't we? Right? Th those are not the way to keep a long-term happy set of customers for a software firm. And so, you know, I, I think it's about showing up. I think it's about buying uh, credibility you can get the VP title, I, I'm always happier with a VP title because you get five times as much stock options as with a director title, right? <laughs> but uh, but it's it's really about um, convincing the, the rest of the folks around that executive table that your point of view is well understood, that you bring real value, that you're seeing what's going on. You're, you as a product leader, I as a product leader, we're selling our credibility to the rest of that senior staff. And if we don't have any, it doesn't matter what title we take. And if we have that credibility and we get in there and we push for the right outcomes and the company thrives, then I think you get to go back and ask for a better title. Yeah, no, you got it, you got it there. Thank you so much for sure unpacking that. Now, Rich, where can our listeners hear more about your work? Uh, well, luckily, I bought a domain in 1993 that's the same as my last name, okay. uh, which is only important because there's 26 or 30 million people in the former Soviet states with my last name, and none <laughs> of them got there first because I was there first. But um, there's about 20 years worth of blog posts on my website. It's www.miranov.com. There's maybe 100 recorded talks, a bunch of podcasts. This will go up there as soon as we get it released. Um, I try to write you know, one thought piece a month. So that's like a thousand, twelve hundred words on something that's coming up a lot in my coaching sessions or that I see. So so my goal is is one useful thought per month that people can get off the newsletter, off the website, wherever it is. Um, awesome. It's all, for, it's all for free. We're all paying it forward. Um, anything I can do to keep somebody else from making the mistakes that I make, makes that that's good happiness for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Rich, for coming on the show and talking about product leadership beyond managing PMs. It's my pleasure. And, and thanks. And I, I look forward to hearing this live. That's it for this week's episode of PMH Podcast, guys. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, feel free to share your LinkedIn, social media, leave a five-star review so we can re reach more audience. And if you have any suggestions, definitely reach out to me. My email is cyrus at productmanagerhub.org. Now you can get all the tips and action items of this show for free at this bit.ly link I'm going to give you. It's bit.ly forward slash pmhub23.